Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning. How are we? All right. Still. Okay, we'll get there eventually. My name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here at the district, and again, we, we are excited to be celebrating our fourth anniversary as a church, and honestly, for, for me, it's, it's interesting, because I, I think a lot of times when you think anniversary or birthday or celebration, I mean, you're thinking kind of, let's do all the bells and whistles, let's like have, you know, confetti cannons and, and have everything upbeat and whatnot, but honestly, for us, we're, we're just, we're humbled to be here. We're humbled to be here as a church at four years because I just know personally, I mean, being in church planting for, uh, goodness, seven, almost eight years now, uh, being involved in church planting, I've had so many just dear friends of mine who have planted churches who never get out of year one, who never get out of year two. Um, and, and across the board, the stats are 80% of church plants literally fail within the first three years of, of trying to get started, trying to get going. And there can be, again, hundreds and hundreds of reasons why they never eventually make it or, or kind of found some, some sort of traction or, um, or really just get planted, as the word literally is describing. And so for us, we're just, we're just humbled. Uh, a lot of times people ask us, like as, as, um, as I'm talking to other church planters or other pastors, like, how's the church plant going? And I kind of always just respond with, we have another Sunday coming up. Because we just don't know a lot of times. You just don't know what the life of it is going to look like. And so guys, like it, again, this might not feel like a, a celebration. And at the same time, it's in light of COVID. So of course, you know, kind of throw the damper on everything where we can't have all of our people together right now in one room being able to celebrate. But for us, it's just way deeper than that. It's just way deeper than being able to say, yes, we're four years old today. For us, it's being able to see the fact that Jesus has been moving and that Jesus has been present and that Jesus has been building his church. And we can say that because I know four years ago when we started this thing, we had about seven, I'd have to go back and look at it, about seven or eight covenant members of the district church trying to kind of launch this thing out publicly and we've seen, by God's grace, just growth. We have about 40 covenant members now. And adding another elder today, as we're going to appoint at the end of the service. And just seeing God's grace continue to flow out as He is moving in our hearts and in our minds. And again, yeah, what we're doing as the district church is not by any means um, flashy. It's not by any means fast. Uh, it's not going to you know, get invitations for me and Josh to go uh, speak at conferences to let people know what the secret is for what we're doing here with the district. You know, we're, we're not getting those invites, but we don't care. And the reason why we don't care is because we want to do what Christ wants to do. We want to see this church be built on Him as the foundation alone rather than any type of kind of grow quick, uh, methodology that you might uh, kind of implement or we're, we're not going to go to the books and start looking at the books for trying to figure out how do we kind of adopt corporate growth styles and methods and kind of you know infuse those within the church to be able to grow the church to a certain size by a certain year and 
fill in the blank. Like, that's just not us. That's not us. That's not what we care about. What we care about is Christ. First and foremost, we care about Him. And we want Him to be glorified. We want Him to be magnified. And the way that He's glorified and magnified is by getting Him into us, into our hearts and into our minds, by studying and reading and meditating on His Word day and night, by, by praying and communicating with Him day and night, by engaging and in, 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 uh, being in community with others who are in Christ. That's, that's what it's all about for us. And so that's what we're celebrating today is as I just think back over the last four years, I'm thinking back on on relationships and and families and couples and individuals who have just walked through very, very difficult situations and circumstances. And it wasn't that we were trying to come in and just provide band-aids for those circumstances and situations. It wasn't that we were trying to numb those situations. We weren't trying to prescribe anything that's just going to help you get through it. But rather, what we were doing in those situations is saying, here is Christ. Because He's what you need in this situation. We can't make the circumstances go away. What we can give you is Christ that will provide you hope in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. And that's what we're doing. And that's what we're going to continue to do. And that's why, specifically today, on the fourth anniversary, we wanted to launch out with a new series called Colossians. Never know, don't know if you've ever heard of that. We're very trendy with our naming of our series. It's whatever the book of the Bible is that we're going to be walking through. And then we kind of give you an underlying theme that's going to be throughout that entire series. And for this one, it is the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. And what that means for us as we walk through this, and what that means is you kind of see as we open up the book of Colossians and as we go verse by verse, we're going to be walking through it over the next 13 or 14 weeks. There's, there's kind of a part right in the middle where we might break up one into two parts. But for the next 13 or 14 weeks, we're going to be walking through verse by verse this book written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And as he's writing to them, what he's giving them is what they need. Not some methodologies on kind of how to figure out the different viewpoints and political uprisings and theological train wrecks that's going on within Colossae at the time, but rather giving them the foundation upon which they can actually grow and develop as a church. And, and byproduct of that as individuals, being able to grow up in Christ to, to spiritual maturity. And so a lot of times what, what some theologians say is Romans was written so that we might know how to uh, get Christ, how we might be found righteous, how we might uh, be found in conversion and salvation, where Ephesians and Colossians, written at the same time in a prison cell by the Apostle Paul, are written so that we might grow up in Christ now that we have Him. That we might see what the spiritual maturity looks like as it flows through us because we are now found to be in Christ. And really you start to actually see that, that transition for the Apostle Paul is when he's in Romans 8 and he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so Colossians is him taking that understanding, that theology that we are in Christ, and he is just now giving us all of the blessings and the peace and the spiritual understanding that just flows out from that position. 
from that identity. And as you'll see here in a minute, that location, because that's actually where we belong. So we're going to be diving in. And today this is kind of an intro to Colossians. And so we're just going to be looking at the first two verses. Um, and, and it's probably going to go short, so that's okay. It, we're just looking at the first two verses. And we're going to unpack this a little bit so that we can have, again, a foundation for walking through what the intent of this letter is. Because honestly, guys, this is, this is my challenge uh, for the next 13 weeks is we're not trying to understand Colossians to fit our current context. That's not what we're doing. That's not what preaching is meant to do. What preaching is meant to do is to help us understand Colossians from the context of the Apostle Paul writing it to a people in the city of Colossae and what is going on with them there, therefore to understand the meaning of why he's writing the letter to them. And once we get to whatever that meaning is, we can then look at maybe there's something from that that we can glean from to help us in our current context and circumstance here. So when we read this, don't read it and listen to it and absorb it through the lens of our current circumstance and situations. Understand it through the circumstance of their situation. And then from there we're able to apply it to ours. So that's the big challenge for us as we, as we walk through this. So, I want to begin with another word of prayer as we dive into this, and then we will begin in verse 1. Father, thank you so much that you have given us your written word, that you have preserved it over these several millennia, and that you have given us the charge to preach and proclaim this word to your people so that we might grow up and continue to mature in the identity that we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, that is our ask for this morning, is that the Holy Spirit who is sent to be a helper, to guide us in understanding the truth, and to guide us in understanding the meaning of the truth in its context, would you allow us to understand that this morning? So that as we continue to walk through this week after week, that we would grow one degree of glory to the next, that we would mature more and more like Jesus Christ, and that we would be able in that to lay aside and to throw off all that is entangling us, the sin that holds us, and that we would be broken free from that in order to walk in, again, your marvelous light, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ every single day. For it's in His beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Alright, so I'm going to read the two verses and then, and then we're just going to kind of break them down here. Starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So that's it. That's what we're going to cover today. It seems very simple, and actually a lot of times, and I would probably uh, say this is, is common of you as well, is whenever we start reading a book of the Bible, we see the greeting, and we just kind of rush through it because we want to get to the meat. We want to get to the, like, it's kind of like whenever you receive a letter in the mail and you see that it's addressed to you, I got it. It's addressed to me. I don't need to read that. I can move on to the next thing. 
And sometimes when we do that in Scripture, we miss out on actually the theological foundation that drives the rest of the letter. Because not only are we seeing who it comes from, we're seeing who it's addressed to. And oftentimes, even in the way that the Apostle Paul addresses a letter, he kind of gives way to what his intent for the letter is. He kind of gives way to, hey, this is my thesis. This is, this is really what I want you to see. I want to grab your attention before we actually dive into the rest of it. And that's why we wanted to devote an entire sermon to literally just the introduction, the, the greeting of this letter. And so it begins with kind of the authors. And that's typical among um, Paul's 13 letters that he writes as he begins addressing them, not to the recipients, but actually who is the one writing the letter before he then gets to the recipients of the letter. And so he begins with Paul. And Paul, oftentimes, we look at that, and, and you've probably heard this at times. What was his name originally? Saul. And a lot of times people will kind of take this understanding that, okay, he used to be Saul, and one thing that Jesus loves to do is change people's names. And so when Jesus came in and, and met Saul on the road to Damascus and converted him and made him a Christian. When Jesus did that, he then said, you are now Paul because I have transformed you. I have taken the old person and made them new. You are no longer Saul the sinner, you are Paul the apostle. And a lot of times people will use that. And, and honestly, it translates as a great sermon. It translates as a great illustration that this is what is happening. That, that we are going from one complete identity to a new complete identity, and therefore, let's just have a name change because of that. But that's actually not the case with the Apostle Paul. Paul is actually just the translated word of Saul in Greek and Latin. So they just referred to him because he was going out to the Gentiles, out to the Greeks, and, and doing ministry among them. They're like, oh, your name is Saul. That translates Paul in our language. So we're just going to call you Paul. It's kind of like Jesus in English is Yeshua in its original language. Jesus in Spanish. There's a lot of different translations for it. That's literally all that's happening here. So let's not over-spiritualize something that's actually not within the text. Let's not do that. However, the thing that is to be noted here is that he does refer to himself as an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And this is the most important thing for us to see regarding who this guy is. Because that sets the foundation for why he's able to write the letter that he's writing. And for this church that, one, he's never visited. He didn't plant this church. Epaphras planted this church. That we'll see as we get to it. He's also never visited them. As he says in the letter, I never came to you. But he's writing a letter to them. So if he's not their local elder or pastor, and he's also not ever visited there and had any type of relationship with them, what gives him the authority to write a letter to them that's actually admonishing them, um, not just encouraging them, but commanding them to live out an identity in Christ that they are not living out? Which is the reason for him writing a letter to them. What's well, because of this claim of him being an apostle, an apostle. And in the Greek, apostolos has a range of meanings. And in some of Paul's letters, it even includes uh, something as simple as messenger. Other areas, it's just an accredited missionary. But in this case, in this scenario, because of what he attaches to apostle, 
that reads in the original language is that it's attached to him being an apostle of Christ Jesus and that it's by the will of God. Those are very, very important here. Because what he's laying down for them is, I am the foundation upon which the church is being built because I am the messenger in which God is using to proclaim his name. The way this kind of works itself out is he is a person called by Christ himself to represent Christ and to proclaim Christ and thereby serves as the foundation of the new people of God. And we see this as, it, as, as again, Colossians, and you'll hear me do a lot of going back and forth between Colossians and Ephesians because they parallel one another. You'll see a lot of similarities with both of these letters. But we actually get a little bit more of the framework for this apostleship that Paul has and how it functions for the building up of the church. We see this in Ephesians 2, 19-21. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So right there you see the framework for how Christ goes about building His church. Him being the cornerstone of the church. And if you don't understand anything about being a cornerstone in construction, cornerstone is the brick laid by which every other brick then follows after that pattern. So literally, to build a building starts with the foundation of the cornerstone. And so that's why if you see some, some traditional churches that if you walk up to them and, and they're brick laid out, you'll kind of see like when that church was started, they'll have their name on some type of cornerstone in a corner because it's just highlighting this idea for them, an illustration of we are built on Christ as our cornerstone. Which if we're thinking not just church building, but we're thinking church as the body of Christ, if, every, if, if, if He is our cornerstone, that means then every relationship within the church and every individual in the church is defined by the cornerstone. They're defined by Jesus Christ and Him alone. And then as it flows out from there, Christ being the cornerstone, as He kind of then has His um, supervisors or kind of if you keep with that construction mindset, um, it's whoever the... Oh, I'm losing the word now. The foreman. The apostles are kind of like the foreman that are overseeing the work, overseeing the job, overseeing the church, and laying the foundation upon which the church is then going to have the Word of God that actually guides it, leads it, transforms it, and molds and shapes it. And that's what the apostle here is doing. And he's laying this out for us, that that is who he is, and that's what his role is. Not only that, but we also see that by him saying that I'm apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God means that this is an apostleship that he did not establish himself. That he did not come in. Like he, he's wanting them to understand and know that I did not uh, aspire to this office, nor did I choose this office, nor did I work my way up to this office. No one made me an apostle other than Jesus Christ Himself. And it was according to the purpose and will of God. So therefore, as this church is reading this letter, 
that's going to be circulated amongst um, their church and their region, as they're reading this letter, seeing that it's coming from an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, that is just as um, important and authoritative as if God is coming to them himself and saying, this is what must be done. This is what must be done. He is a viceroy. He is a messenger. He is speaking on my behalf. Listen. Listen. And the beautiful thing that we see in not only Colossians, but we also see in Ephesians, is that this is a letter not just circulated to them, but to all the saints, to all the brothers. That you can literally take that and, and just pass it down throughout our millennia. That when we read this letter, we're not to just read it as, man, that was great for them, but that it's authoritative for us. To the saints everywhere. So he keeps on regarding the name Christ Jesus. Because I do want to stop there for a second. Because again, if he is the preeminence, if he's the foundation, it's important that we understand the terms here. Because a lot of times, even in our context and culture, we so use the name Jesus Christ that many people, and I would actually wonder if there's any, um, I should have looked it up this week, but if there's any um, surveys out there on how many people think Christ is Jesus' last name. Because we just say it so much, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Well, that just must be his last name, but it's not. It's not his last name. Jesus is his name. It's his given name. But Christ is not only a title, an office, but it's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment. It's much deeper. So that's, and that's actually why you see the Apostle Paul using a little bit of a shift here, where oftentimes people would say Jesus, who is the Christ, he is now saying Christ Jesus, because he is almost referring to him as his fulfillment and office, then his name. It's kind of like us saying Mr. or Dr. or King or whatever it looks like. This is what he is referring to as Jesus is. This is who your office is, your fulfillment is, plus your name. And so what is that office and fulfillment? Because it's actually not often used, whether it's in the Old Testament or even in Judaism, but it was used early among the Christians to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the man in whom the entire line of promise about a great Davidic king to come had reached its fulfillment. So when they refer to Jesus as Christ, what they are referring to him as every promise that we've been listening to, holding on to, and looking for is now embodied and fulfilled in this man, Jesus. So to them, you can kind of like have this deep understanding with the apostle here, and especially the fact that Paul is not just some um, random guy walking down the road to Damascus on his way there in order to slaughter, murder, and imprison uh, Christians, and specifically women and children as well. Not only is he there to do that, but he is on behalf of Judaism. I mean, he is, as he refers to himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And to be a Pharisee of Pharisees means that you got to go through the entire schooling of the Jewish tradition in order to finally arrive at this place that he had the authority that he had to literally be the next chief rabbi, essentially, within their 
their sect of their religion. And so much so that if you don't understand Paul's original um, education was another part in a letter. He refers to himself as being studied under Gabi, or Gabi, Rabbi Gamaliel. And to be the pupil or student of Rabbi Gamaliel means that you, up until the age of five, have to have the Torah memorized. And if you don't know what the Torah is, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized by the age of five. Ezra's about to turn five in like two weeks. And we're a little behind. From there, what the rabbis do is they then select the best of the best of the best. Of those who have memorized that. And they pull them out and then they put them into round two. And round two is up until the age of about nine. You have to have from the Torah up to the wisdom literature. So Psalms and uh, Song of Solomon and Proverbs and Job. You have to have all of that from Genesis to there memorized. And then again, the rabbis take the best of the best of the best and they pluck them out and then they take them on to the next. And the next chapter is then from Genesis all the way to finishing out the prophets to Malachi memorized. And from there, they'll pick the best of the best to be their students and their pupils who will eventually take their positions as rabbi over their sect, over their religion. That's incredible. What that means is when Paul's walking down this road to Damascus on his way to destroy this, this impending Christian religion that is going against what he believes, he is also still waiting, longing, desperate for this king to come from this Davidic line because it's his heritage. It's his people. It's going to be his savior. They just didn't expect it to be Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't expect it to be a carpenter's son. They didn't expect it to be a homeless poor man. They expected him to be this established, wonderful, rich, wealthy, prominent king. So it breathes so much more life into this name and title that he's giving Jesus because of what he was waiting for and longing for and expecting. So for him, when he says Christ Jesus, he's screaming from the depths of his heritage and his lineage and his beliefs. This is King Jesus. This is Lord Jesus. This is Savior Jesus. This is Messiah Jesus. This is the Anointed One. This is the Son of God. So it's much more than just Jesus Christ. It is Jesus everything that we need. Everything that we need. And that's why if you've been to one of our new member classes or come through our membership, that's why we use the language that the district church is Jesus ruled. Because He is Christ. And He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which we understand the foundation of these letters and the authority of Scripture. So that's Paul. And then he goes on and he says, 
Timothy, our brother, is with me. Timothy was enlisted among Paul's co-workers at the beginning of the second missionary journey. We see that in Acts 16. And he began one of the most important of Paul's mission, uh, ministry associates. So much so that Paul just intimately uh, directs two letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. But one of the things that I love between the relationship of Paul and Timothy, and I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but if you missed it, they had such an intimate discipling relationship that it was much more than just, hey, here's a good book to read, or hey, I think you should go and participate in this church, or I think you should go on this mission trip. Like They were invested in one another's lives, so much so that, that the Apostle Paul almost just kind of became like Timothy's doctor. Like knew that he had ailments within his stomach, and he was like, hey, you need to drink a glass of wine every night to be able to cure the ailments of your stomach. I mean, he knows him, and he knows the issues that he's dealing with. He knows the anxieties that Timothy is walking through, so much so that in 1 Timothy 4.12, he tells him, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in life and in love and in purity and in speech and in truth. He's, he's telling him he knows what he's walking through, and he's encouraging and admonishing him. This relationship between Paul and Timothy is what I long for for each one of us in this room. Is that we, and, and, and honestly, this is what we hope to just measure the success of the district church based off. Is one-on-one, one-on-two, discipling relationships where we so know the ins and outs of one another that we actually know what to tell them, what they need, how to encourage them, how to rebuke them when we see them getting off. I mean, there were times Paul needed to tell Timothy, watch your doctrine. Watch your understanding because there's going to be people come in and try to teach you something that's wrong. We need that type of relationship for us to be able to grow as the body of Christ. We don't become the body of Christ when we're individually not growing in Christ. And so this is Timothy. He's along, um, he's along with Paul here, helping to write this letter to these saints and faithful brothers. And so that's where we're going to go now. Saints and faithful brothers. The word saint is, is an interesting one. It's hagios in the Greek, and it means most holy thing. Now, we refer to ourselves as saints, as believers in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to you as a saint. Okay, It's not just for the Roman Catholics. All right, It's for every single one of us. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, you might not think of yourself as a saint, and when you actually look at the term, most holy thing, you're thinking, I'm the least holy thing. I am so far from that. And there's some truth to that. There's some truth to the fact that Paul, who is writing to this church, claiming himself to be an apostle, calling them saints, also refers to himself in one of his letters as the chief of sinners. So there is this kind of dual understanding that, yeah, we are sinners, yet we are saints. 
We are sinners because we still have this indwelling flesh that we are walking with that is not yet glorified, that has not yet been removed. But by identity, we are saints. And the, way we, or the reason why we know that is because of the terms that follow this. Saints and fellow brothers who are what? In Christ. In Christ. The only reason why we are able to be called saints and the only reason why we are able to, to be referred to as most holy ones is because we are covered in Christ. We're covered in Him. This is the great exchange that we talk about. This is the 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin so that we might become His righteousness. Righteousness is a beautiful thing. Righteousness is a perfect thing. The only time the Bible ever refers to anything righteous is when God is talking about Himself. God never refers to anything else other than Himself as righteous except for Christians when we become in Christ. It's the only time. Therefore, righteousness for us is not something that we earn. It's not something that we develop. It's not something that we build upon. It's not something that we can go out and learn and study and figure out. It's not something that we navigate. It's not something that we weld. It's, it's literally given to us by Jesus Christ Himself that we might become His righteousness, granted to us. It's grace. It's the free gift of God. Your sins have been removed and He's given you Jesus. You are now in Him and Him alone. This is why the language of Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, sinner. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Therefore, the life that I live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 is your understanding of your new identity and how your life is actually meant to live. It's no longer, okay, Dwayne plus Jesus, now let me continue to do my will, let me continue to do what I want, let me continue to figure out life, and any time that I want to tap in or ask Jesus for advice, now that I have Him, or now that He's in me, I can just kind of um, uh, uh, get some advice here and there. That is not it at all. What it means to be in Christ is that the life I live in this body that is still a sinful body is flesh. The life that I live in that, I live by faith in Christ. Therefore, as Christ is being developed out and changing my thoughts and changing my views and changing my desires and changing all of those things that used to serve my body and my flesh to do sin is now being able to train my body to do righteousness because that's where it's flowing from. It's coming from Christ in me that actually changes me. That's important. Nothing else in Colossians will happen if they don't understand that they are saints that are in Christ. That they are righteous because of Christ. That He is preeminent in their life individually. 
and that He's preeminent in their life collectively as a church. That He is the cornerstone. And therefore, as the cornerstone of my identity, everything should be defined by that. Not by me. So my relationships should be defined by Jesus. My calling, my career should be defined by Jesus. My desires should be defined by Jesus. My worldview should be defined by Jesus because He's the cornerstone within my identity. So everything flows out from there, which means when we come to anything, and I'll get a little bit practical here, anytime that we come to anything in our current culture that says you should think this way, you should do this, you should believe this, you should feel this way, what we should be doing as believers in Christ is coming back to our cornerstone and saying, what does Jesus have to say about this? What's Jesus' thought on this? Because Jesus' truth transcends all of culture, all of time, of any people, person, group, tongue, nation, all of the above. His truth goes out. And the reason why His truth is good news is because it is actually what leads to flourishing for society. Whether that's roles between men and women, whether that's roles between society, whether that's roles between how we love one another, how we encourage one another. He has a truthful design that God created and thought and breathed out in order for us to live by. And therefore, anytime anyone comes in and says, let's redefine it, we need to come back to Jesus because He is the preeminence of everything. He's the foundation upon which everything is built. And when it goes contrary to Jesus' thought, and Jesus as the Word, when it goes contrary to that, that's sin. That's sin. And that's when we lead to our own destruction. That's when we lead to our own death. That's when we lead to our own despair. That's when we lead to anything and everything that does not bring life. Does not bring life. One thing that's actually interesting in the way that it's written here is refers to them in Christ. And I know in our translation here, if you're in the ESV, it says for, for those who are at Colossae. But in the actual Greek, it is the same language in Christ in Colossae. In Christ in Colossae. And the interesting thing there is because it's using the same language means that both of these terms have to do with location. We are literally located in Christ, which means anywhere we go, He's there. Because we're there. And if we're in Him and He's in us, then that is, by definition, location. So it's not to just mean this kind of mystical um, understanding that, yeah, we're in Christ, but I know He's seated at the right hand of God right now, and so... I can go over here and hide. Or I can do this and then later come to Him and be like, hey Jesus, I'm sorry. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I did something that I shouldn't have done. No. By location, He's in us. We're in Him. Everywhere we go, there Jesus is. And that actually kind of sounds like it's bad news because of the examples that I gave. But it's good news. It's good news. Because again, what is his goal here for us? 
It's what we're going to see here. His goal for Colossae is that grace and peace would be flowed out to them. And they need it. They need it in this area. Colossae had been a, the chief city of the Lycus Valley for at least five centuries before Christ came. And it started losing ground to Laodicea, 11 miles away, uh, which was during the first centuries B.C. and A.D., located on a major trade route about 120 miles east of Ephesus. It was a cosmopolitan city, and it was exposed to diverse cultural and religious movements, specifically including Judaism. And so what you had here was because this was such a big trade route, and for five centuries was literally one of the leading cities of Asia Minor, current-day Turkey for us, because it was one of their major cities and major trade routes, they actually referred to Colossae as the crossroads. Now again, I know Indianapolis is referred to as the crossroads of America, so if you want to start to draw some, some um, parallels here, that's fine, we can do that. But what we begin to see here is in the crossroads, there's this thing called syncretism that begins to happen within these cultures. And it's just this kind of melting pot, if you will, of this culture coming into this culture. Hey, let's, let's kind of merge these things together. This belief system and this belief system, let's merge these things together. And we're going to get in specifically what those belief systems were as we walk through the book. So I'm not going to cover those now. But what we need to understand here is that this city began to literally lose its um, magnificence because of the secretism that was coming into it. Now, don't hear me saying that diverse culture is bad. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that they actually tried to make everything the same is that they actually tried to make this culture look more like this culture, so let's bring them together and create one culture. Let's take this belief system and kind of um, parse out this belief system, let's pull those together and let's make those, those the same thing. And because they made them the same thing, no one, no one was actually defined by the beauty of their own culture, and then they began to actually implode on themselves. It actually began to lead to their own destruction. They were not, no longer defined by their culture, and absolutely, from a religious understanding, from a practice of beliefs, they were not defined by anything. And this is what we begin to see as it walks out through this book, is if we just come in and think sameness is good, and that there's actually no standard, that, that, that Christ does not have a design, then we will go on to our own destruction as well. We will. We'll go on to our own destruction, our own death. And therefore, the reason for this letter, Paul's writing to the Colossians with one great desire, that they should grow into full Christian maturity. It is in that light that his greeting is to be understood that grace sees Christian life and growth as the free gift of God, and that peace with the overtones of the Hebrew word shalom encompasses not merely personal peace of mind and heart, but all the wider blessings of belonging to God's covenant family. Grace and peace to you. Grace, we want you to just receive the free gifts and pursuit of God to you. 
and peace that in receiving His grace, it's going to lead to your flourishing as you are living out all of the design and promises of God. That He actually knows how to develop and cultivate a beautiful society that is diverse, yet glorifying and honoring to Him. That magnifies Jesus Christ. That allows us to be able to see the differences in one another, honor those differences in one another, and continue to mature and grow up into the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's after for, the, for these people. The scene is set for a letter through which Paul intends, by his writing, to be a means of that grace and to bring about that rich and mature people. And so that's our prayer for us over the next 13 weeks, is that as we walk through this letter, that we will grow up to be a rich and mature people who are able to see our differences and to honor those differences that God has bestowed to us as we grow up and mature into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as he gives us this framework for understanding that Christ being the cornerstone of, of us as individuals as well as us as a church, that as we are defined by him and it goes out in this apostolic ministry of the inspired word of God being delivered to us, that that is building us up as we are in Christ. That as we'll see later on as, as we cross-reference it with 1 Corinthians 12, that in that place, we begin to be the body of Christ. That every person is not the same in the body of Christ, but that every person has a form and a function in order for the body to move and to work and to serve and to ultimately honor, honor and glorify Christ as head. Christ as Messiah, Lord, Savior. So my prayer for us, again, is that there's a resurgence for us as we walk through this letter. To not just see Jesus as an add-on to our daily lives. I'll get to Jesus when I get to Jesus. I'll spend some time with Jesus when I spend some time with Jesus. Not an add-on, but that everything in our life is defined by Him. Called out by Him. Commanded by Him. Invited by Him. Come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is the Jesus we're talking about. That He's come not to condemn the world, but to save it. That He loves, that He encourages, and that He pursues. He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And we want to honor Him as that. We want to see Him at 13 weeks from now. Man, I just pray that you can just feel the culture within the district church that we see Jesus as Christ. Christ. And the Anointed One. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank you for your son, Jesus. 
We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that he is our cornerstone. That he is our chief shepherd. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He's the head of this church. And he rules it, not with an iron fist. He rules it with grace and peace. And so, Father, I pray for us that we would receive that grace and that peace every single day as we look to Jesus. Let your word just embed itself within our hearts and in our minds so that the Holy Spirit can continue to cultivate it and plant it and so that it would spring forth fruit and that others would see, see you for who you are. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at